everyone talks to themselves. Everybody. Not just the crazy. Everybody talks to themselves. Now, most people let that monologue go on inside their head and don't move their lips, right, as they're walking down the street. And most people don't take those internal words and make them um, verbal utterances. But everyone, almost without exception, talks to themselves. Psychologists call this inner speech. And not only is it natural and normal, psychologists tell us it's incredibly important for us to be able to have this ongoing conversation. We use it to organize our thoughts before speaking. Some of us should probably do that a little bit more, right? We use it to plan and strategize. When problems come up, we kind of think through the solution before enacting them. We use it to process our emotions. So as, as, as feelings start to emerge, we start to organize and sort. And, and so that the, maybe the, the very initial brunt of our emotions aren't experienced by others. We use it to catalog our memories, to, to remember things, to take old memories off the shelf and, and rehearse them internally. We use it to rehearse future conversations. Maybe you have a hard conversation coming up, and a lot of times before you go into that hard conversation, you have that whole conversation in your head, and you've got the other person, and you're dialoguing, right, to, to maybe play out some different scenarios and different ways that that conversation could go. It really helps us to navigate meaningful relationships in our lives. We also use that inner speech to help us process what we ultimately believe is good, true, and beautiful. The beliefs that we live by, a lot of that is sorted out and processed internally. Inner speech enables us to process what we think and feel in order to know how to act. Dr. Jessica Nicolosi, she's a clinical psychologist, and she writes this. When working with my patients, the focus is less on whether they talk to themselves and more about the content of those conversations because what we say to ourselves when we say it and how has a tremendous impact on our self-esteem, our beliefs, and our overall sense of worth. In other words, what she's saying is it's the content of those inner conversations that impacts what we believe, it impacts how we live, and ultimately who we become. Uh, biblical counselor Paul David Tripp writes this, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Now think about that. Think about your last week. Think about your last month. What are those conversations? What have you been saying to yourself? How have you been, what have you been saying to yourself about who you are? What have you been saying to yourself about what is most important? What do you say to yourself about who God is, about what you believe is good, true, and beautiful? See, as we face the highs and lows of life, as we experience the valleys and the mountaintops, as we go through the ordinary and we go through the extraordinary, we need a gospel that's good news no matter the circumstance. We need something to tell ourselves that is ultimately good, true, and beautiful, no matter the situation. And this morning, as we continue walking through the Gospel of John, we're going to finish up chapter 6. It's on page 891 in the black hardcover Bibles um, around you. And in John chapter 6, God is going to give us the Gospel of grace, this wonderful good news that we need no matter the circumstance. We're going to learn three things as we finish the end of John 6 this morning about the gospel of grace. The first thing we're going to learn is that God initiates. 
God initiates. It is good news for us that God does not wait until we get our life together. God is a proactive God, and he initiates this gospel of grace in our lives. Second thing we're going to learn is that God provides. God is ultimately a provider. He abundantly provides for our every need. Every need that you have, there is provision for it in the gospel of grace. And second, and finally, we're going to learn that God awakens. See, more than just information and rehabilitation, everybody needs transformation. What every person needs is new life. And in the gospel of grace, it's God who provides that new life, this new awakening, this spiritual rebirth. So in the gospel of grace, we're going to see that God initiates, that God provides, and that God awakens. So let's pick up the story in verse 41 to see the gospel of grace as God initiates. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say that I have come down from heaven? Now we're picking back up the story and we find that the Jews are grumbling about Jesus because he's told them, I am the bread that's come down from heaven. Now let me help remind us of what's happened so far. The day before, Jesus fed thousands of people. There are estimates of over 20,000 people, 5,000 men. Then you add the, the women and children, close to 15 to 20,000 people. And he fed all of them with two, uh, five loaves and two fish until everyone was full and with leftovers. And the leftovers themselves, what was gathered up was even more than what was there before. Then the next day, uh, many of those who had uh, had feasted from this table come back to Jesus looking for another round of this all-you-can-eat buffet. And instead of asking and inquiring about the significance and the meaning of this sign, this miracle that Jesus had just performed, they wanted Jesus to put the show back on, to, to refill the tables with fish and bread so they can have another fish sandwich. They wanted Jesus to fill their belly and put on another show. Now, Jesus does offer provision, but instead of a physical meal to satisfy their physical hunger, Jesus tells them about bread that will satisfy their soul. And he says, I am the bread of life. The sustenance that I provide is eternal, not perishable. He tells them, the bread that I provide for you is not something that can be earned because ultimately it's a gift that you receive. And then he tells them that the bread of life is me and I'm a person and you follow me and you love me and you have a relationship with me. I have not come to provide some program for you to perform. And that's everything we've covered in the last two weeks. And now as we pick up a story, we see their forefathers, uh, just like their forefathers, the Jews who are hearing all this start to complain and grumble, just like their forefathers did in the wilderness when they didn't understand what God was doing. See, they were were, uh, in the wilderness, headed towards the promised land, and they're not even a few days, a a, a month or so outside of um, being delivered out of the, uh, from under the hand of uh, Pharaoh by miraculous signs and wonders. And they're wondering Hey, there's nothing to eat out here. And they're grumbling in the wilderness. And they're thinking, God, you may be so powerful to deliver us out of bondage and slavery, but you're not powerful enough to provide food for us to eat in this barren wilderness. 
And now they're grumbling because they can't understand how it is that Jesus could come from heaven when they know who his father and mother are. They say, hey, isn't this Joseph's boy? Don't we know who his mother is? Her name's Mary. They're Galileans just like we are. So how is it that Jesus, who clearly has this Galilean heritage, is now claiming to have a divine heritage? Now, we can be understanding, right? Their question isn't totally unwarranted, right? They're, they're, they're just trying to make an assessment about what they see. However, their cynicism and their unyielding skepticism is unwarranted because they've seen Jesus perform this miraculous sign before their very eyes, something that only God could do. And so it should at least open up the conversation to say, hey, there must be something more to you. That alone should have provided and started to produce a faith in them that was seeking understanding because God isn't opposed to our questions, but he is opposed to hardened hearts. This unyielding skepticism that says, I have all of these doubts and my questions are really trying to validate my doubts so that I can reject you. As opposed to saying, I have this initial kind of seed of faith and my questions are, are the, the hope of my questions is that you by your grace would water it and cause it to flourish and thrive and grow. Those are two fundamentally different kinds of postures. But that's not what they have. They have this unyielding doubt. Now let's look at verse 43. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day, as it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God has seen the Father. Now in verse 44, Jesus says, the reason none of this makes sense to you is because you're relying on human reasoning. You're, 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 you're thinking about it in terms of human logic. But God doesn't operate according to human logic because he's not human, right? God works according to divine wisdom. Then Jesus explains, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. Now, we saw something very similar last week in verse 37. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Remember that, verse 37? All that the Father gives me will come to me. So if we combine this truth in 44 and this truth in 37, if we combine those together, we get this. All that the Father gives to the Son will come to him, and no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. Two parallel truths. You have the positive statement and the negative statement. And in that is a promise of good news, that everyone who is drawn by the Father and who is given to the Son, every one of them will be raised up on the last day. All that the Father gives to the Son and all that the Father draw, is drawn to Jesus, every one of them will be raised up on the last day. That's the Bible's way of saying death will not have the last say. On the last days, this, this, this phrase that's used over and over in the Bible to picture the culmination when this age ends and the, the new one begins, it, on that day, when it seems like death has had the final victory, it will not. They will all be raised up to new life. Everyone who is given to the Son 
will overcome death and experience the ever-increasing joy of eternal life. And Jesus says, even the prophets agree with me. And then he quotes Isaiah 54, 13. Now, when he's doing that, he's talking to a group of people who would have had so much respect and profound, they they would have had profound significance in the words of a prophet. He's going, listen, this tradition that you rely so heavily on, it actually agrees with what I'm saying. Isaiah 54, 13 says this, and all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. What Jesus is saying is that as the father draws many sons and daughters to Jesus, it is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So how does the father draw people to Jesus? Is it by force or manipulation? No. Jesus opens up this picture of a loving father teaching his children where to find life and fulfillment. We see the the father initiates and invites his children to know God the son, to know God's son. The father teaches, and his true sons and daughters hear and learn from their father. And the evidence that they've received and obeyed the father is that they come to the son. Notice the verbs here, and who's doing what. It's the father who draws and teaches. And those who come to the son are those who hear and learn. So in this, in this analogy that, that Jesus is giving, he's saying God the Father will teach his true sons and daughters, and they will hear and respond to his teaching. And those who hear and respond will come to the Son. The Father initiates, and his children receive his teaching And Jesus says, I know that this is true. I know that this is how the Father operates because I've come from the Father, right? He said, no one has seen the Father except he who has come from the Father. And because I'm the one who's come from the Father, I've seen him and I know him and I know how he works and I know his heart and I know how he is working. I know how he works. One of the distinct honors and privileges of my life is to get to be the Father to Brighton and Everett, and Haddon, and Evie, and Emerson. And as their father, one of the ways that I show my love to them is by teaching them. It's one of my privileges, it's one of my honors, it's one of my responsibilities. And and in teaching them, my hope is that they would grow in knowledge and understanding, that they'd grow in wisdom and maturity. And as their father, I've been teaching them from day one. From day one. How to talk, how to eat how to live, how to learn, how to function and thrive in the world. See, I didn't wait until they learned English, until they came and, 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 and got to this place where they said, listen, that guy over there might know what he's talking about, so I should probably go to him with all my questions. Did I wait until that point to begin teaching them? Of course not. A father does not wait until their child comes. As their father, my love compelled me to begin their education even before they knew they had need or want of it. A, t- a, parent, a loving parent always initiates that teaching. And teaching, by its very nature, takes intentionality, right? It takes proactive planning. It takes presence. You got to be there. It takes time. It takes patience. In short, teaching takes initiative. Jesus is saying, God the Father doesn't wait until we recognize our need to start drawing us to him through his tender love and teaching. 
You see, because of sin, our default position is one of self-autonomy. We want to rule ourselves. And not only do we think our way, uh, that we, not only do we want to do things our way, fundamentally, every one of us thinks our way is best. And in our pride, we don't look for God. And in our ingratitude, we simply forget that God is even there. That's the default posture of every human heart. So if God waited for us to get over that, we'd never come and we'd never have a relationship with him. It takes God initiative in his mercy and love to not wait for us to come to him and for him to take the initiative as a loving father and start to speak to us from the inside. And as he begins to teach and as he takes that initiative, his children hear his voice, and we learn from him. We learn the good news of the gospel of grace, that God the Father has sent God the Son to raise up his children on the last day so that none would perish but have eternal life. And as, the, as God the Father starts to teach his true sons and daughters, hear that good news and respond. In the gospel of grace, it's God who initiates. But not only does he initiate, God provides. Second point is God provides. Look with me at verse 47. Jesus keeps going. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Friends, everyone, no matter your race, no matter your pedigree, no matter your status, no matter your current situation, no matter your gender or age, everyone who believes in Jesus receives the gift of eternal life. Did you see that in his words? There was no caveat. Whoever, that means anybody, without distinction, anybody who believes can have eternal life. It's the central point of John's entire gospel. We're only at chapter six, and we have seen this theme over and over. And at the beginning of our series, we fast forwarded to one of the very last verses where John says, the whole reason I wrote my gospel was that you would believe and know that Jesus is the son of God, the Christ, and that by believing in him, you would have eternal life. Now that is really good news for us because having eternal life, overcoming death is a question relevant to everybody. Every one out of every, every single person will at some point face death. And everyone has to figure out how they will deal with death. Every religion and every non-religion has to deal with that question. It's one of the fundamental questions of life. So for our um, atheist and agnostic and irreligious friends, death is simply a natural part of life. It is a fixed fact. There's a birth, there's death, there's your life in between. And there's nothing you can do to prevent it. Even if modern medicine grows and technology grows, eventually everyone will die. And so the best way to deal with it is just to accept it as a natural structure of human life. For our, uh, for our friends who believe in the reincarnation enlightenment religions like Buddhism or Hinduism, instead of one life, we live many lives. And upon death, our soul reincarnates into another life And that next life is either better or worse based on your performance in your previous life until hopefully at some point it gets better and you get uh, taken out of that endless cycle. You reach enlightenment and your soul is released from the cycle of life and death. And in the end, based on which path you go down, you either cease to exist or you're absorbed into this divine creation 
kind of combination thing itself. In works-based religions like Islam and Mormonism, after death, there is a heaven and hell, but it's entirely based on you and your performance in this life. Here are the rules. Follow them. Make sure you get them all right. Do good, and you have a chance at earning your spot in heaven. But Christianity is distinctly different than all of those. That's why it's actually so offensive when someone says all religions are basically the same, because they're actually totally different, right? They might share some uh, very thin layers of similarity, but the differences are actually quite remarkable. First, Christianity doesn't deny the basic impulse that everybody knows, that death isn't natural. Death is an enemy. It's why we weep and mourn over it. And that is the right response because death comes to still kill and destroy And to tell someone that that's not what's doing denies that basic impulse that everybody knows. Death is an intruder into this good world God has made. Second, Christianity teaches that everyone lives once. It's not an endless cycle. There is a real heaven and hell. But unlike works-based religions, Christianity teaches that God the Father provides eternal life as a gift, not to be earned But like all gifts, it's something to receive. And everyone who believes in Christ receives that gift. Now, you might be asking, well, how does that work? I want that gift. How does that work? How does Jesus provide salvation from death? I'm glad you asked. He keeps going in verse 48. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give, that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now the idea, Jesus kind of ups the ante, right? The idea of eating his flesh sends the Jewish authorities into disputes among themselves. Often in the Gospels, you'll see this over and over, the crowd really refuses to listen to what Jesus is saying. Anytime he's being metaphorical or, uh, or, or figurative, they take him as like in this crassly, literalistic kind of way. When it's clear Jesus is speaking by way of metaphor, that there's a, a spiritual nature to what he's talking about. See, it's not a matter of failed communication as much as it's a matter of a failed heart. It's that whole thing about hearing again. Do you have a receptivity to hear? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and it's just clear they don't want to hear you? It's not that you're not communicating clearly. It's not that you're not using the right words. It's just they've shut down. They don't want to hear anymore. That's kind of what's going on here. It's a failed heart that doesn't want to really receive and understand. They simply just don't want to receive what Jesus has to say. But for the sake of the other disciples and the people that are, that are here listening in the synagogue, Jesus keeps going. He says this in verse 40, in 53. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We hear that again, right? Jesus already said, who who believes in me will will be raised up on the last day. 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, if they thought uh, eating Jesus' flesh was hard to hear, 
This idea now of drinking blood is intolerable and outright offensive. Jewish law forbade the drinking of blood. Now, by adding the word unless, what he's really doing is making it a prerequisite, right? He's saying, listen, unless, you can't get past this. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. You want life in you? You got to eat my flesh and you got to drink my blood. Then like a good teacher, he gives them an illustration to make his point. He says, the Exodus generation, the generation that was delivered out of the bondage of slavery, they ate manna in the wilderness. But guess what? It only provided temporary sustenance and they eventually died. In contrast, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You thought that was bread from heaven? No, no, no. This is true bread from heaven. The living bread from heaven that gives you eternal sustenance. The manna that God provided was temporary. The provision of this meal, my flesh and blood, is eternal. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on it has eternal life. So what is Jesus saying here? Let's unpack his metaphor. First, remember that all of this, this whole conversation, is taking place in the context of a hungry crowd asking for more food to eat. So Jesus takes that situation, he takes their physical need to point them to a greater spiritual need that they have. Every hunger for, everyone hungers for meaning and purpose. Everyone hungers for everlasting life. The problem, Jesus says, is the the manna, the things of this world never satisfy because all of them are simply temporary. They They weren't designed by God to satisfy your soul. There's a reason why it doesn't fulfill you. It was never intended to do that. So God being rich in mercy and love sends the very thing you need to find meaning and purpose and eternal life as a lasting provision to satisfy your spiritual hunger. Now, last week we ended on John 6, 40, and Jesus said this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and the result will be I will raise him up on the last day. And now in verse 54, we just read this, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So if we take these two scriptures and put them next together, I've got a little equation here for you, all right? Look in the screen. Jesus just said in verse 40, looking to the Son, receiving Jesus, and believing Jesus is the same thing as eating flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. That's the key to the metaphor right there. Eternal life, I mean, uh, looking to the Son, receiving Jesus, believing in Jesus is the same thing as eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. And what's the result? Eternal life and being raised on the last day day. Jesus provides the key to his metaphor if we're listening. Think about it. When you look to food and drink for nourishment, what's the first thing you have to do? First thing you have to do is you you, you look at it and you say, I believe this will be good for me and it will provide nourishment for me. If you believed the food was or, or the drink was spoiled or poisoned or distasteful, you're not gonna drink it or eat of it, right? You reject it. If I tell you I have put cyanide in this burger here, you go, no, thank you, right? That's not good for me. That ends in death, right? But once you believe that the food and drink is desirable and that it's good for eating and drinking, then what do you do? 
You've received that food and drink into your body, and you trust that as it's making its way and it's doing its thing, it provides nourishment and sustenance, right? That's how food works. Food 101 right there. In the same way, we look to Christ as our heavenly food and drink for spiritual nourishment. We look at him and we say, if I receive him, he will satisfy the longings of my soul. Then we receive him by faith and trust that as we receive him, just like we would receive food, that he will provide eternal sustenance for our very life. St. Augustine said it simply, three Latin words. <laughs> believe and you have eaten. That's the metaphor. Believe, if you believe in Christ, you have eaten his flesh. You have drank his blood. See, don't get hung up on the metaphor. The metaphor is for us because everyone has experienced eating, right? Everyone has looked to food and said, if I receive this, I'm gonna trust that it's going to provide the nourishment and sustenance I need. And he's saying, I love that. It's a universal metaphor. Everyone knows what it's like to look at food and to receive it. And Jesus said, in the same way, Look at me, receive me, and trust that I will provide eternal sustenance for you. To eat and drink of Christ is to believe in him. Now look with me at verse 56. He goes on. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread, this heavenly bread, this bread of life will live forever. Jesus says, when you feed on me, I will abide in you and you will also abide in me. That's one of those words we don't use anymore. I haven't heard any of you use the word abide lately. Abiding means to remain. It means to stay connected to something. And Jesus is saying, when you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is a, a, a new relationship, this abiding, where I abide in you and you abide in me for this life-giving, ongoing relationship. See, just like eating physical food happens regularly, right? You don't just eat one meal in your life and then walk away from food. No, no, no. We eat regularly for our sustenance. And Jesus is saying, in the same way, we should continue to feast on Christ you don't need Christ one time in your life. You need Christ every day in your life. And in this mysterious mutual abiding, in this union and connection to Christ, which we will get to, John, like ha the other half of John's gospel is about this union with Christ. We will get to that. But for right now, let's see this, that when we have this mutual abiding, this union and connection to Christ, we have access to the life that's given from the Father through the Son. They share in life together, and as we are connected to Christ, feasting on his flesh, drinking his blood, we have access to that same life as well. Everyone connected to Jesus shares in that life. Now finally, how is that meal made possible for us to consume, right? So we've assessed that it's good. How do we actually consume that meal? We are not chronologically at the end of John's gospel where we see Jesus lifted up on a cross to be uh, crucified for our sins. But even though we're not there, almost every chapter, John is gonna uh, foreshadow the cross. In John 1, Jesus was the lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. In John 3, as he's having this conversation with Nicodemus, he says the Son of Man will be lifted up so that all who look on him will be saved from the poison of sin. And now in John 6, 
Have you noticed how bloody it's gotten? Have you noticed how the flesh of Christ is given for us as a meal to eat? How is any meal given for us to eat? It dies, right? Even if it's a vegetable, it's cut off the vine. An animal is killed and slain and roasted for us to eat. The flesh of Christ is given for us that we might eat, and the blood of Christ is poured out that we might drink. In fact, the language of sacrifice underlines this whole text. At the beginning of John 6 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, this whole scene happens just before the Passover when a spotless Passover lamb would be sacrificed and then consumed. They would eat that Passover lamb. And just like the sacrificial lamb is slain in order to be consumed, Christ, our sacrificial lamb, is slain in order to be consumed so that all who eat and all who receive him would have eternal life and lasting relationship with him. So Seven Mile, my friends, have you eaten from this table of grace? The meal has been provided for you. Every preparation has been made. Have you drank from this cup of life? Have you looked to the son and believed and received him? So you can't skip over the fact that in order for us to eat and drink, Christ had to lay down his life. And there's an offense to that, that one would have to die for your sins because it was our sins that held him there. He came to die for our sins, not for his. And as we understand that bad news, it enables us to receive his good news and sit down at this table of grace and receive him. Jesus says, skipping a meal during the week isn't a matter of life and death. You'll survive. But Jesus says, if you skip this meal, it is a matter of life and death. In the gospel of grace, God initiates and he also provides the meal we need in order to be satisfied. Now let's look at the last few verses to see that it's also God who awakens. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus said, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, do you take offense at this? Sounds like Jesus can even hear our inner thoughts, which is true. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So not only are some in the crowd having a hard time, some of these people who've said Jesus will follow you are having a hard time receiving his words. Some of his very own disciples are considering if it's too hard for them. And Jesus knows it, so he asks them, are you offended by my words? And in doing so, he makes another allusion to the cross. He says, if you're offended by that, what about when you see the Son of Man ascending back to the, to the Father? See, Jesus came into this world by way of incarnation, right? John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But his ascent back to the Father will come because he will be lifted up on a Roman cross and suffer and die on our behalf. What's his point? He's saying, if talking about my sacrifice is causing you to consider leaving, then what happens when you actually see me go onto the cross to die? He says, that's really going to give you some trouble. If you can't hear about it when you see it, it's really going to drive you away. And then Jesus gives them a final summary of what he's been saying. Verse 63. Don't miss this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Let me say that again. We have a hard time hearing that. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. 
The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus is incredibly consistent in his teaching, isn't he? This is some of the clearest verses in the Bible that it is God and God alone who awakens us to eternal life. Greg Forster is really helpful in this explanation. He says, here we have the whole Trinity working together to transform the unbeliever into a believer. The Father grants that the Spirit will give life such that the person comes to the Son. I love that. The person obviously responds to this work by actively obeying. Otherwise, he didn't come to the Son at all. But what does he contribute to the spiritual transformation that brought about his belief? The flesh is no help at all. Friends, what we all need is new life. We don't need rehabilitation. We need transformation. We don't need more information. We need awakening. We need an awakening. We need life from God, because apart from him, we are dead. And Jesus says, when people receive and believe my words, it produces a spiritual awakening, or as the old Puritans would say, a quickening in our soul that causes us to truly come alive. Now notice, Jesus didn't say, receive my words, and then you'll get a second chance at doing it yourself. He's saying, look, look, I know you've screwed it up, but if you receive my words, I'll give you another shot, another go at it. Nope. Jesus didn't say, get, to act, get your act together, and then you can come join my team. That's not what he said. He said, the Father grants that the Spirit will give life so that the person responds by faith and comes to the Son. Our flesh, friends, cannot awaken itself. Dead people cannot give themselves life. They can't. It's, it's like what it means to be dead. In the gospel of grace, it's God who awakens us while we are dead in our transgressions. The New Testament is incredibly consistent on this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, the apostle Paul writes this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. What that's saying is God, in his own character and nature, is full of rich in mercy. And he looks at us in love because of the love that he has loved us with, even when we were dead. If you have your Bible, underline that. That's what we are before Christ. We're dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. For anyone who's like into grammar, think about who's the active agent. Who made us alive together with Christ? Did it say, and we make ourselves alive to Christ. No, God is the subject doing the action of that verb made us alive together with Christ. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Grace, it's a gift. We our only job is to receive it. And the gospel of grace, God awakens us because he is rich in mercy, because he loves us. That's it. Our flesh is dead because of sin. Sin is the poison that kills us. And by God's grace, it's God who makes us alive. I said it last week, but it's worth repeating again. If you come into this saying, no, I am self-sufficient. 
I have everything I need in myself. I am a self-made person. I am where I am today because I pulled myself up out of the muck and mire. If that's you, if that's your heart, you're really going to struggle with this. You're going to do everything you can to take those words of Christ and manipulate them. When it says that the flesh is no help at all, you're going to go, well, it doesn't really mean that. Right? The flesh is impaired, but there's something in me that will turn it around, right? To the proud, this will seem like a handout. And because we want to believe that we bring ourselves to God, we want to believe that we do the work, we crawl our way there to God, and we say, God, I made it. I'm here. And God says, welcome home. Man, I was rooting for you. was really hoping you'd make it up that hill. And you're like, I know. Back there, I thought I was a debtor. You know, I thought I was a goner. But I made it. I crawled my way through the night. And God in the door. That's what we want to believe. And God's like, welcome home. I'm so glad you made it. We were all rooting for you here in heaven. But the Bible does not portray us merely being spiritually lost, though we are. The Bible does not portray us as merely spiritually downtrodden, though we are. They didn't say that it's merely difficult, though it is. The Bible makes the emphatic point that we do not come to God because we're dead. Jesus did not come from heaven to earth to make redemption merely possible. He didn't put a little bit of life in us and go, get yourself there. It's not like spiritual jumper cables. He came to make redemption a certainty. The Father grants that the Spirit gives life and all who are awakened and quickened and come to life come to the Son. We receive and hear from the Father and we respond as as true children. That's why from beginning to end, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a gift he gives us. And we are merely recipients of God's gracious initiative and his powerful salvation. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Those are sobering words. We often think if I could just see Jesus, if I was there, I would have followed him. These people saw Jesus, committed to following him, saw things that you and I dreamed to see. And after this sermon, they were like, yeah, it's too hard. I'm out. Then Jesus said to the 12, these would be the 12 disciples, the apostles, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, as he often does, answered for the group. And he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Now at some point, every one of us has to make a decision. Everyone has to decide if they're going to receive or reject Christ. Like every gift, when it's extended, you have an opportunity to decide, do I want to receive this gift or not? When, it, when, it, when a meal is set before you, what do you do? Decide, am I going to receive this meal or am I not? In the same way, we find some who had begin, begun to follow Jesus and they walked away. F.F. Bruce writes this, what they wanted, he would not give, but what he offered, they would not receive. Friends, what could Jesus say 
that would so offend you that would cause you to walk away? Maybe it's not this teaching, but is there something that Jesus could say to you? Is there some aspect of your life that Jesus could speak into that would cause you to walk away? Now, don't rush past that question. It's easy to go, no, I'm good. I will always follow Jesus. That question deserves some thoughtful thinking this week. Write it down and really consider the areas of your life where you haven't allowed Jesus to speak. What words might he say that would cause you to consider walking away? Then he asked the 12, do you want to go away as well? His question is direct and aimed at the heart. He says, do you want? What is your desire? Do you, right now, are you thinking about walking away? Peter speaks up and he says, we're not going anywhere. You have the words of eternal life and we've come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. Now I take Peter's statement as a true expression of his faith. But I love that Jesus, Jesus uh, comes in and says, don't forget it was I who chose you. Just in case there's any presumption, presumption, just in case there's any pretense about how you got into this club, don't forget I chose you. And I also chose a betrayer so that the sovereign will and plan of God would be fulfilled. And in Peter and Judas, we have two final pictures of what happens when, G when God brings genuine awakening. See, when God truly awakens your heart, you come alive to him by grace through faith, and you embrace Jesus as Peter does. Though he stumbles and falls along the way, Peter is by no means a perfect disciple. None of us are. But in the end, Peter clings to Christ. But in the case of Judas, we find he's never truly awakened. He follows Christ for a season, but he never fully comes alive because in the end, he abandons Christ for financial gain. You know, I wonder over the course of those three years as the disciples were following Jesus, what kind of inner speech was going on in the disciples' head? How were they internally processing all that they saw and experienced? What kind of gospel were they preaching to themselves? Paul David Tripp reminds us, we're either, we either preach to ourselves a gospel of aloneness and poverty, inability, or we preach the true gospel of God's presence, power, and constant provision. You are preaching to yourself a gospel that produces fear and timidity or one that propels you with courage and hope. You're preaching to yourself a God who is distant, passive, and uncaring, or of a God who is near, caring, and active. So when you feel misunderstood, when you feel like you don't quite measure up, what is the gospel you're preaching to yourself? When you face suffering, whether it's sickness or job loss or relational tension, you could fill in the blank. What hope will you remind yourself of? Will it be this gospel of despair or will it be this gospel of hope? Will it be this gospel that you were loved and cherished more in Christ than you could possibly imagine? Or would you believe the lies that you're worthless and have no value? When life is overwhelming and your goals seem out of reach, what foundation will keep you from toppling over? Will it be the gospel of God's grace? Or will you fall back into that gospel of works of self-help and self-improvement? Will it be the gospel of God's unstoppable love? Or will it be this gospel of do it yourself? I'm all set. I'll do it all. Friends, the gospel of grace doesn't wait till we've got it figured out in God's love and in his grace, he initiates and extends his grace to us. He provides what we need 
at cost to himself. And he awakens us from death to life. And because it is true, because the gospel of trace of, of, of grace is truth, God initiates, he provides, and he awakens. And because of that, you and I have real good news. Not based on a, on a false premise, not based on a, on a false hope, but real good news about what God has actually done. And we can use that gospel to speak to ourselves to speak, and also to speak out loud to our neighbors, no matter the circumstances and situations of life we face. Seven Mile Road, let's be a people who speak this gospel of grace to ourselves, to our neighbors, and as an anchor to our souls. Let's pray.